Friends, good morning. My name is Dave Bast. Uh, I'm a member here at Fifth and uh, filling in for part of the summer. This is the fifth week that we've come to. Um, it's kind of gone by quickly. <laughs> uh, but it's been uh, a good experience for me. I'm glad I could do it. Um, and if you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. Uh, it, it's good to be together though. And uh, aren't you glad you're not in a tent somewhere this weekend? <laughs> I, I know I am. So uh, we've been doing a series called Seeing God. Uh, a series that has looked at some of the most dramatic stories in the Bible of people who actually saw a God who can't be seen. But they saw something. And uh, we've been looking at something of the glory of God, something of his goodness, his power, his holiness. Um, and then in the New Testament, three stories of people who had visions of Jesus beyond the ordinary, not just as he walked uh, the roads of Galilee and Judea, but uh, when something dramatic overshadowed him and filled him with glory. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, and the book of Acts in particular, you've heard of the Apostle Paul. Much of Acts is taken up with tracing his career. There's a lot we don't know that we, we wish we knew about him. Um, we don't know much about his origins. We don't know how his life ended. But we do know quite a bit about uh, 20 years, 25 years maybe, of active ministry. He's first introduced in the book of Acts at the end of Acts chapter seven, which describes the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, one of the deacons, one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, who, was, uh, who irritated the authorities, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and who were so incensed at his speech in defense of the gospel that they dragged him out and stoned him to death. And Luke says that the, the leaders who did this laid their, it's, it's like Paul was the coat holder. They took their robes off and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. We learn he was known as Saul of Tarsus, a city uh, in what is today southeastern Turkey, a Roman citizen, Jewish by upbringing, culturally Greek, uh, very well-educated. He occurs, uh, it, it, the next mention of him is in the very next chapter, almost the next verse, uh, Acts 8.1, that says, and Saul approved of, of Stephen's execution. So he voted in favor of that. Then after chapter eight, at the very beginning of Acts nine, he appears again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for the, uh, so that he could go to the city of Damascus in Syria and hunt Christians there. And then comes the story of what happened to him between Jerusalem and Damascus. Um, it's told first in Acts 9, 
but it's told twice more later in the book of Acts as Paul recounts it in, so the first time as it happens, and then twice more as Paul retells the story. Um, and you'd think, you know, with all the things Luke doesn't tell us in Acts, he devotes three different repetitions to this story, the same story. Yeah, but there it is. So today, we're not going to read the original account in Acts 9. We're going to listen to Paul retell it more fully. This is the fullest version. Uh, about 25 years later, I would reckon, as he's speaking in front of a Roman governor, a guy named Festus. Uh, so it takes place the scene takes place in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Palestine. Paul's been held there for a couple of years in protective custody because he's aroused such hostility uh, uh, by the, uh, among the leaders in Jerusalem that they want to murder him. Um, and so the Romans, because he's a Roman citizen, the Romans have been holding him. A new governor named Festus has come to take office, and a local king named Agrippa has come to pay a courtesy call on Festus, along with his wife, Bernice, and Festus says, would you like to hear what Paul has to say in his defense? And Agrippa says, sure, that sounds like a, a great idea. So in all their regal splendor, they gather in the audience hall of the governor, and Paul is brought in in chains. Let's listen to how he tells the tale. Listen to these words from Acts 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them 
that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a story. <laughs> I can picture it. Um, you know, to the end of his life, Paul maintained two bedrock convictions. One was that he had seen the risen Lord Jesus. I mean, seen him with his eyes, really, physically. This was not a dream. 
This was not the kind of vision we sometimes speak of where it happens inside our heads. He wasn't imagining things. He saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He says so uh, in a couple of places in his correspondence in writing to the Corinthians, a church that really gave him a lot of trouble, including the accusation that he wasn't an authentic apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12. Paul said, Am I not an have I not seen the Lord Jesus? That was the fundamental requirement to be a commissioned apostle in the fullest sense of the word. You had to be an eyewitness. And writing later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul details in a famous passage, Jesus' resurrection appearances. He appeared to Peter, Paul says. He appeared to his brother James. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500 believers at once. And last of all, as to one born in an untimely way. He uses a word that refers to like a premature birth, although Paul's uh, spiritual birth was post-mature because what he means is, I saw Jesus after the ascension. It was totally out of order. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. Last of all, this is the last time Christ will appear until he returns in glory. So that was conviction number one. Conviction number two was that he didn't deserve it. That this was so totally an act of unexpected grace, so completely beyond the realm of what should be, that he considered himself exhibit A of the, of the grace of God because of what he had been. Here's how he put it in one of his last letters, 1 Timothy. I received, um, uh, Paul writes, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserves, uh, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if God could do it for me, he can do it for you for sure. Um, amazing grace. How sweet the sound, Paul would say. So uh, this all happened in this amazing experience on the road to Damascus. Um, just it's difficult to overstate how disorienting that must have been for Paul. I mean, can you imagine? A blinding light, brighter than the sun at noon, Paul says, knocked us to the ground. And there's no question, of course, who and what that light was, because Paul was steeped in the scriptures. He knew the glory of God that had appeared to Moses on Sinai, 
to Isaiah in the temple, to Ezekiel by the, uh, the canal in Babylon. The glory of God. And out of the glory comes a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, ox goads, you know, those sharp sticks that they would use to move. So apparently Paul's been experiencing something. This didn't just literally come out of the blue. Maybe guilt. Maybe he knew more of the story of Jesus and he couldn't somehow shake loose of it. It had somehow caught him, gripped him. And yet he was resisting, he was resisting because it was so disruptive. Look what happened in that moment. Paul, five things. Let me just quickly run through them. First, he had to revise his opinion about Jesus, Jesus' identity. Paul had bought the party line. Jesus was a fraud. Jesus was an imposter. Jesus was a blasphemer. He had dared to call himself the son of God and count himself God's equal. He had died discredited on a Roman cross, thereby attaching to himself the curse of the law upon, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He got what he deserved, Paul thought. And now suddenly, Paul discovers, wait, Jesus, you are Lord? You didn't get what you deserved, you got what I deserved? And I've been, I've been the blasphemer by attacking you? And then not only revise his opinion about Jesus, but about God himself. If Jesus is God, and God is God, how do you make that work? <laughs> well, it would take a while. Uh, it would take three or four centuries before the full implications were worked out of that reality, but there it is. Um, somehow, the Father and the Son and the Spirit must all be God but one God. Here's an interesting uh, preview of Paul's dilemma, of Paul's experience. Jesus had warned his disciples in the upper room that they would experience persecution. He says in John 16, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. That's Paul in a nutshell. And they will do these things, Jesus said, because they have not known the Father or me. For all his religion, Paul didn't really know God because God is the Father of Jesus and Jesus is the Son of the Father. So Paul had to come to terms with this completely new reality, new understanding. And then he had to revise his opinion about the church. Why was he persecuting these people so fiercely? Because they were apostates. They were traitors. They were betraying the God of Israel. They were idolaters. They, had, they were giving their worship to a human being. And suddenly, Paul realizes, have you ever had an experience 
where you realize you were wrong? <laughs> I mean, really, really wrong? <sighs> and you have to take a step back and look at all of your opinions, all of your views, revisit all your tweets, <laughs> you know, try, maybe delete a bunch of them. The church wasn't this enemy body of false Jews. It was the body of Christ. Did you notice Jesus' initial question? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, the Lord so identifies with his body that to attack the body is to attack him. When one of Jesus' followers is struck, Jesus himself feels the blow. The church is the body of Christ. <laughs> They're the true people of God. And not just Jews, but Gentiles will be brought in. So, Paul is given a mission. It's one reason for reading this last and fullest account of the Damascus Road experience because it includes the commission that Paul gives to, that Jesus gives to Paul. And Paul has to begin, so he has to rethink the person of Jesus, he has to revise his understanding of God, he has to change his views about the church, he has to change his own identity because Paul had taken great pride in who he was. There's a wonderful passage in Philippians 3 where Paul uh, kind of goes through his qualifications um, earlier in life. Uh, let me see, where is it? Philippians 3, um, beginning in verse four. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In other words, in his human circumstances, his life, his family, his, his abilities. Um, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He kept the law. This was a young guy on the go. He was headed places. Uh, he, he, he's like a, a ball player who's been tearing it up in AAA and he's just getting the call up to the big leagues. He's like a pastor who's been toiling away in a rural congregation, gets a call to a big church in the city. He's on the, wait, no, wait, that happened to me once and it didn't really, <laughs> didn't really lead anywhere. So, but anyway, you get the point. He's, he's on the way up. He's gonna be a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees as he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to zeal a persecutor of the church, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, he goes on to say, all of that is so much rubbish. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans in exchange for knowing Jesus. 
So, and I lost it all, he said, because suddenly Paul realizes I have to become a Christian. And that means my family will likely turn against me. That means I lose my job. <laughs> that means my erstwhile colleagues among the Pharisees will look on me with horror, in fact, try to kill me. But I have no choice. I have to become a Christian because I've seen Jesus. Because now I know the Lord. See, don't become a Christian because you think you're going to get something out of it. <laughs> maybe you will. Maybe you won't. Become a Christian because it's true. Because he knows the Lord. And that's the last thing Paul has to do. He has to revisit his career plans <laughs> because his career among the Pharisees is going nowhere now. And in fact, not only does Paul have to become a Christian, he's going to become a missionary. He's called to be a missionary. Oh, man, oh, man, what a world of hurt he's in for. The toil, the hardship, the danger, the contempt. But what else will he do? Because Jesus says, I'm going to send you, Paul, to the Gentiles. I want them as well. And Paul says in reply, as he tells the story once again to uh, Agrippa and Festus, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I did what the Lord called me to do. And what a wonderful thing it is. Did you notice this it, as Christ explains the commission to him? I'm going to send you, uh, I'm going to appoint you a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. This is not the whole story, Paul. You get the, you get the fundamentals about who I am and what's happened. I've risen from the dead. Uh, but I'll show more to you along the way. And meanwhile, you're going to go not only to your own people, but especially to the Gentiles. Listen to this. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. These are the effects of the gospel in our lives and in the world. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You notice that? It's such a full and wonderful statement of what the gospel does in our lives. Instead of darkness, light, illumination, we see reality for the first time. C.S. Lewis once said that he, he believes in Christianity for the same reason he believes in the sun. Not just because he can see it, but because by it, he can see everything else. That's what the gospel does. Truth about God, truth about ourselves, the truth about the world. Illumination, light instead of darkness, power instead of bondage, to deliver from the power of Satan to God. 
Uh, he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Do you know that? It's from the first question and answer of our catechism. Precious, precious document. We no longer have to live in bondage to the powers of darkness and despair. We no longer have to live in bondage to addiction, to shame, to sin. Uh, no, it's not magic. And no, we struggle, probably for the rest of our lives. But there is a freedom that God gives us by the power of his spirit working within us. God just doesn't do something for us out there. God is doing something for us in here. And so deliverance rather than bondage. And then in the third place, that they may receive forgiveness of sins instead of guilt, pardon. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. My sin, you love the old hymns, right? <laughs> my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen. Yeah. Forgiveness, full and free. You can't be more forgiven than you are the moment you are united with Christ by faith. And finally, a place, <laughs> a place you belong, no longer alienated. Paul would say of the Gentiles to whom he uh, reached out with the gospel, in Ephesians 2, he would say that they were living without God and without hope in the world, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant and the promises. They were far away, but now in Christ, he, he goes on to say they are brought near. We are given a place. We are the people of God. And just as he reaches this wonderful, wonderful climax, Festus breaks in and he says, Paul, you're, you're nuts. You've read too many books, Paul. I, I think it's kind of gone to your head. And then Paul kind of brushes that off, ignores him, and zeroes in on Agrippa because Agrippa uh, has a Jewish wife. He's part Jewish himself. He's been exposed to the scriptures of the Old Testament, which, as we saw last week, point to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. They're all about him. And so Paul kind of makes it uncomfortable because this is the point. This isn't just theory. This isn't just some kind of, oh, I don't know, up there Bible stuff. This is life or death. And so Paul says to him, Agrippa, do you believe this? Do you believe it? I know that you do. I hope, maybe he meant I hope you do. <laughs> Do you believe this? In other words, does it matter to you? The way it mattered to me, will it turn your life upside down because you're committed to it, because it's true? This wasn't done in a corner. You know, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection isn't introduced with the phrase, once upon a time, or long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It happened 
This was not done in a corner, says Paul. I love that. Out in public, on the road just outside the gate to Jerusalem, 500 saw him alive. Go ask them. Do you believe this? And Agrippa says, what, are you kidding me? Wait a minute. You're getting personal here? You, you want me to become a Christian? You think you can make me a Do you know who I am? You know who you're talking to? Paul says, yeah, I know. But I wish you would, in fact, not just you, I wish everyone who can hear me would become what I am. Except for the chains. So a simple question. Do you believe this? All of this? If you do, here's a wonderful way of expressing that faith. You know that when we come to the Lord's table, it's an act of faith. We come showing that we believe. We believe his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. But more even than an act of faith, it's an act of receiving. Because as we come in faith, we receive Christ himself in the symbols of his death and resurrection. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.